open with me, brothers and sisters, for the last time to the book of Haggai. We'll be in Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 20. Who has the power? Who has the power? If you ask the soldier on patrol in Afghanistan if he has the power, he'll tell you no, and then he'll point to his sergeant. If you ask his sergeant if he has the power, he'll probably say no and then point to his first sergeant or his captain. If you ask the captain, he'll probably point to a sergeant major or a colonel. If you ask the colonel, he'll probably point to a general. If he has one star, he'll point to another general with three stars or four stars. If you ask the general if he has the power, he'll probably point to somebody like the chief of staff. If you ask the chief of staff the same question, he'll, he'll point to the president. But in our society, we know that even the president doesn't hold the ultimate power. If you ask him where he gets his power, he might point somewhere else, the electoral college. You ask where the Electoral College gets its power, you get what I'm doing here. It goes down and down and down and down. Eventually, though, you have to get somewhere. The, the power has to ultimately come from somewhere. I think the answer to where all of power comes from is it comes from God. God is the sole source of power and authority in the universe. And he distributes this power and authority as he pleases. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 13 when he says this, There is no authority except that which is given by God. The authorities that exist have been appointed by God. And if God is the sole source of power and authority, then it makes sense that he can give it and he can take it away as he sees fit. God says that as much in Daniel 2.21. He says, I depose kings and I raise up others. And that's what today's text is all about. The people of God are back in the promised land. They've gotten to work rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city, but they're still under a foreign rule. They're under the rule of the Persian king, who's a pagan king. Zerubbabel is the political leader that has led God's people back into God's land. He's the one leading them in this effort to reestablish life in the promised land. And he has the title of governor. Governor was uh, just the title of somebody who was appointed by the Persian king. So even the political leader that the Jews do have in the promised land, well, he's under the thumb of a foreign pagan king as well. Well, what everyone wants to know is, will it be like this forever? Let's read the text and find out for ourselves. Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 20, reading through the end of the book. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth 
and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? I have three points for you this morning. Promises made and promises kept. That's point number one. Promises made and promises kept. Point number two, God's timing is not our timing. And point number three, God is sovereign. Point number one, promises made and promises kept. Ninety years or so before the events of Haggai, the Lord handed His people over to the king of Babylon to be disciplined. In Jeremiah, we read God saying this, I will hand over King Zedekiah of Judah to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and to their enemies who seek their lives. But before Darius of the Persians and Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians, Israel had her own kings. The best of them was David. As great as David was, however, he was still a sinner. But God was kind to David. And God made a promise to David that the ultimate king, the final king, the king who would come, and after him there wouldn't need to be another king because he would be the forever king. That king would come through David. It would come through his lineage. He says it like this to David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors... I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish His kingdom. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. People wondered if David's son Solomon would be this great king, this forever king, but he wasn't. Towards the end of his life, he fell into idolatry. But maybe it would be one of David's grandsons, one of the sons of Solomon. Well, if you know that story, they were actually worse than their father and much, much worse than their great-grandfather. As you trace the lineage of David throughout the Old Testament, what you really see is just the story of one bad king after another. Even the good kings were good relative to how bad the really bad kings were. None of these kings that you see coming from the line of David, coming from the house of David, are anything close to what you might imagine this ultimate king would be. It's, you know, God's special anointed king. It's just, it doesn't seem like we find him in the Old Testament. So after so many failed kings, and after being ruled over by foreign pagan kings, God's people might have begun to ask themselves, if God had forgotten the promise that He made to them, the promise that He made to David. In today's text, God is letting His people know that He has not forgotten His promise. He is going to reestablish the kingly line of David, and He's going to do it through Zerubbabel. Now, you'll notice that I did not say 
that God promised to make Zerubbabel a king. In the Scripture reading earlier, we saw that Zerubbabel's great-grandfather was a king, and he was cursed, as was his son. And the promise to their great-grandfather, to his great-grandfather and his son, was that there would never be a flesh-and-blood king on the throne in Judah again. And God stuck to that word. But the kingly line of David is being reestablished. God promises to make Zerubbabel like David in that he is a signet ring. Look at verse 23. He says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, a signet ring was a ring that a king would typically wear on his right hand, and it would bear the inscription or the symbol of his authority. So if the king would declare something and have it written down, or if he would write a letter, or if he would pass a law, or whatever he may do, he would drop a glob of hot wax on that document. And then he would press his ring down into that wax, leaving the symbol there in it. That was how the signet ring worked. It was an imprint of his authority on the earth. In today's text, God is telling Zerubbabel that he will become a symbol of God's authority among the nations. Historically, that symbol amongst the nations was political. It was a king. Zerubbabel's great-grandfather was one of these kings. And he was so bad. He was such a bad king. This is what the Lord had to say to him. If your son were the signet ring on my hand, I would tear him off. So not only are you a bad king, you're such a bad king that you're not going to be the king and your son's not going to be the king. And in today's text, God is telling Zerubbabel that this discipline, not only of God's people, but also of the line of kings, the discipline of the kings is coming to an end and God is going to reestablish this kingly line. And one day, many centuries later, The king did come. His name was Jesus. And although Zerubbabel, excuse me, although Jesus, like Zerubbabel, never became a literal, physical king sitting on a throne over a nation, he was very much a king. He was the signet ring of the Lord. He was the symbol of God's authority amongst the nations. This king died a death on a cross, which ironically and mockingly carried the inscription, King of the Jews. And it is through this death on the cross that Jesus, the ultimate king, the final king, the Messiah king, came to bring us salvation. And he's calling every person in this room, and every person in the city, and in the state, and every person in the world to submit to His Lordship. Following Jesus means more than just trusting Him in your heart. It means submitting to Him as Lord and King in your life. If you're here this morning and you call yourself a Christian, but you haven't really submitted your life to Jesus as Lord, uh, I want to challenge you and tell you that maybe you don't really belong to Jesus like you think you do. 
If Jesus is your friend but not your king, he's not the Jesus of the Bible. Zerubbabel was appointed by God to lead the people of God out of captivity and into the promised land, to rebuild the temple so that the people could offer sacrifices and be in right relationship with God again. But Jesus, He was the King who would come and reestablish the line of Zerubbabel. He was also commissioned by His Father to lead His people out of captivity, to lead them into the promised land, and to reestablish a right relationship between God and the people. And He also had something to do with the temple. Rather than rebuild the temple, Jesus was the temple. And he was destroyed. But he rebuilt the destroyed temple. And the temple that he destroyed is a temple that will never, excuse me, the temple that he rebuilt is a temple that will never be destroyed again. And now, even now, he is leading his people into the promised land. A promised land that can never be destroyed, that can never be conquered by a foreign or pagan king. Jesus was the king that everyone was waiting for. He was the long-awaited Messiah, the root of Jesse, the branch of David. So much of the Old Testament is about God making promises, including today's text. But so many of these promises seem to go unanswered, especially in the lives of the people that receive the promises. Think about Abraham. Hebrews Chapter 11 acknowledges this. It says, all these, that's all the people that God promised the ultimate promise to in the Old Testament, they died in faith without receiving the promises. But when Jesus came, God demonstrated that He does in fact keep His promises. He kept His promise to to David. He kept His promise to Zerubbabel. When Jesus showed up, he made it clear that Zerubbabel really was his signet ring, that he really was going to establish him on an eternal throne. But when Jesus came, God demonstrated that he is the ultimate promise keeper. And now we wait for him to come back again. Point number two, God's timing is not our timing. Certain men and women... They don't really know how to read their Bibles very well, and perhaps they don't really care to. When they read this text, they tend to scoff at the things that God has promised to do in verses 21 and 22. Shaking the heavens and the earth, overthrowing the throne of kingdoms, destroying the strength of kingdoms of nations. As far as they can tell, God hasn't shaken the throne of any kingdom or overthrown any dominion in the nations. Persia, the kingdom that was conquering the Jews here in the time of Haggai, that had conquered them, that was ruling over them. Well, God didn't shake them out of their rule immediately. Their decline happened over like four or five centuries. As they read this text, they think that these things haven't happened. But actually, if you read this text a little more carefully, you'll see that the language that God uses here probably doesn't refer to Persia or even to Rome that comes after them. In today's text, the Lord speaks in the future tense. But He doesn't use the same kind of language as we saw last week. Do you remember last week? 
God was very specific in the language he used about the future. He said, mark this day from this day forward. It's very specific. In today's text, God says, I'm about to. I'm about to. I'm going to. About to. Well, that's, that's not very clear at all. It's like when Chancellor says he's about to come over to my house. That could be five minutes. It could be five hours. Nobody really knows. Today's prophecy, it seems to be pointing to something beyond Persia. Something beyond Rome. Something beyond the immediate horizon that the Israelites could see in their day. You see that in verse 23, I think, when it says, on that day. On that day. If you look carefully at the rest of your Old Testament, when you see that language, on that day, you see that this is usually the language that the Lord uses when He talks about the last day, the Lord's day, the day of His ultimate judgment. Listen to this same kind of language, just one of many examples from Isaiah 2, when He's talking about the final judgment. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and the lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. The arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. People will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He arises to shake the earth in that day. It seems like the events that are being prophesied in today's text, if we let Scripture interpret Scripture, they're events that kind of have a dual fulfillment. I've taught about that before. Dual fulfillment means that, you know, it, it's fulfilled once, but not ultimately, and then later there's a greater fulfillment. Ultimately, God fulfills this promise in the coming of Jesus. He shakes the nations when He sends the ultimate King to the earth. But there's still another day coming. A day when this prophecy will be perfectly fulfilled, when, when everything that we just read in Isaiah chapter 2 will happen, when every ruler and authority, every king, every person in every lofty place that is proud and haughty, that thinks that they have authority over God and man, on that day they will be destroyed. That's the day that we now wait for. Now, this about-to language still might be confusing to us. In verses 21 and 22. But brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of a cliche. Remember, things are usually cliche for a reason. God's timing is not our timing. And the language that God uses to communicate about His timing is not necessarily the language that we might use to communicate about His timing. So when God says, I'm about to, I'm about to, or soon, I'm going to, He means it. But soon, in the mind of God, may be 10,000 years from now, or 10 million. What we expect to see in our lifetimes, well, it may tarry for 10 lifetimes, and it will still be soon in the mind of the Lord. We measure time in minutes, but God measures time in millennia. Did you know that in the New Testament, 
one of the authors, Peter, he responds to people who are skeptical about the Lord being slow to do the things that he said that he's going to do. About these prophecies that seem like they haven't really come to pass. You know, this, this New Age skepticism of the Bible is not so New Age at all. It's actually quite old. Peter says it like this. Speaking of the people who are skeptical, he says, they will say, where is the coming He promised? Ever since our ancestor died, ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Where's this prophecy? Where, where, where's everything being shaken? Where are these kings and rulers being overthrown? It, things seem like they were before. Peter knows. And he responds to that by saying, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. So when we read the Bible and we see God say, I will, I will, I'm going to, I'm about to, in a little while. And we say, but when, Lord? Well, the answer is, in His good timing. When, uh, when we lived in Peru, the people of the, the jungle had a different concept of time than we did. And we had to learn a phrase down there, un ratito. That's the diminutive of un rato. It's, 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 it's like in, in a minute, you know, in a minute, in a second, in a little while. But, it's, you know, if you, if, you, if you understand it from the English way of understanding that phrase, it just means like, yeah, pretty soon. Well, we found out the hard way that what that really means is sometime today or maybe tomorrow, maybe by Friday, un ratito, a lot of time waiting for food, waiting for packages, waiting for un ratito to come around, and it took a while to get there. In order to live with these people, we had to adjust our understanding of what they meant when they said, in a little while. In the same way, if we want to understand God and cling faithfully to His promises, we might have to adjust our understanding of what I'm about to means. We have to understand that when God says I'm about to, it might not mean the same thing as we might think it means. Now, the wrong way to respond to this teaching about God's timing not being our timing is to say, okay, cool. The Lord may tarry. I can, it could be 10 years. It could be 10,000 years. Let me kind of just let off the gas. Let me become complacent. You know, Peter understood the Lord's timing better than anyone. And even as he told the Christians that he was writing to that the Lord's timing is different than ours and it may be much slower, he followed it up right after by saying this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Don't assume, brothers and sisters, that just because the Lord may tarry, that He will tarry. Jesus, over and over again, tells us, His people, to be ready for Him and His return. He tells us to pray for Him and His return. He tells us parables to help us better understand how we should be trying to be ready for His, discern- his return. He told His disciples 
to be on the lookout for his return. And as a matter of fact, they were. As you read the language of the New Testament, they seemed to expect this imminent return of the Lord Jesus. But they also knew that it could not happen in their own lifetime. That's kind of the pattern of the Lord. The right way to respond to this teaching is to hope. It's to hope with great expectation that the Lord will do all that He's promised to do and He's going to do it soon and sooner than we might expect. It's to hope that when He says soon, He means like right now. Like, hopefully, Lord, You come back right now and take us, Your people, to heaven. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. But this hope that we have, it has to be a hope that's rooted in God's understanding of time in our understanding of God's timing. And when we root our hope in this understanding of God's timing, well, it allows us to hope without being discouraged or dismayed if the things that the, Lord's prom- that the Lord has promised don't come to pass today or tomorrow or next week or next year or in your lifetime or in the lifetime of your grandchildren. God's timing may not be our timing, but God's timing is always perfect timing. Listen to the words of Habakkuk. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says this, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. There's a prophecy, it hasn't happened yet. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now, I know it can be hard to wait. I know. I know that it can be especially hard to wait while you are suffering while you wait. I know how hard it is to trust in the Lord's sovereignty, especially as you look around and you see all these kings and rulers and authorities that seem like they're in control, like the Lord's not in control. As we look around and we see all these powers and authorities using their power and authority to obstruct justice, to do evil, to persecute God's people, we want to cry out with a psalmist and say, How long, O Lord? What are you waiting for? Why aren't you moving now? Why are you so slow to do these things you promise? Why aren't you crushing these evil despots? Why aren't you shaking the heavens and the earth? Why aren't you crushing these evil armies now? Don't you understand that we're suffering? And so we cry out with the psalmist. And we ask, how long, O Lord? How long will you tarry? Why haven't you moved yet? I wish I had all the answers about God's timing, but I don't. But just because I don't have all the answers doesn't mean I don't have a sufficient answer to questions like this. And the answer is rooted in the nature of God Himself. You see, God is more loving and more kind than we are and than we could ever be. God is wiser than any of us or any collection of us. God has a better perspective 
on everything that's taking place in the universe than we do. God has purposes that are higher than ours in the events of this world. And God is perfectly just. He does no thing that is evil or wrong or bad. So even though we the creatures may not understand why God our Creator is moving in His timing, we can still trust in Him as we wait. We can trust He's good, He's kind, He's just, He's wise. He will not do us wrong. In Psalm 13, after David spent several verses lamenting the timing of God in his own life, as he was suffering under persecution, waiting for God to move, after he cries out over and over again, How long, O Lord? He finally just ends it like this. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation, and I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. He finally says, I don't know why, but I know that you love me. So I'm just going to rejoice in your salvation. I don't have all the answers, but I know that you, God, have been kind to me. And that's sufficient while I wait. I hope that you take that as a comfort while you wait as well. Point number three, God is sovereign. The word sovereign means possessing supreme or ultimate power. The language that God uses in today's text communicates His sovereignty with unction. It's like God is going out of His way to communicate what He's communicating with fervency, with force, so that nobody can walk away wondering who's really in control, asking who really has the power. Notice the repetition, I. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and their riders. And by the way, the way that he does it, he doesn't say that he's going to have Israel destroy these other armies. He says that he's going to work things so powerfully in this situation that the armies are going to kill themselves. They're going to fall on each other's swords. I will take you, Zerubbabel. I will make you like a signet ring. I have chosen you. Look what I'm doing, what I'm doing, what I'm going to do. Seems like the Lord has a plan. And He is powerful to bring it to pass. The really cool thing about this is that God has so much grace for Zerubbabel. Not only does He have a plan, He actually communicates His plan. He tells Zerubbabel, hey, I got something. I'm going to make this happen, and I'm the one who's going to do it. Can you imagine how comforting this must have been for Zerubbabel? Have you ever felt the weight of leadership before? You know, like a, a, da- a, a, a husband experiences this for the first time when he gets married. You know, when it's just you, it's like, all right, it's just me. You know, if there's no food in the fridge, we'll be okay. If I have to live out of a cardboard box, you know, I can find one in the back of Walmart. But when you get married, now it's like, okay, now I, I, I have to leave my wife. I have to provide. Food's got to be in the fridge. The, the, the bill's got to be paid. It's a, it's a big weight. 
if the Lord brings a child into the equation, that weight is increased. Now it's not just me and my wife, but now I have children that I have to take care of. If you've ever been promoted to being a boss on your job, you've experienced that new weight. You know, your boss doesn't care about excuses. You know, you're the boss, but of course you have another boss. And your boss just wants you to get it done. Just get, the, just get it done. That's all that matters. How much pressure do you think Zerubbabel was feeling as he tried to lead God's people in this impossible task? He's leading this broken people who have a centuries-long history of disobedience, who have been punished by the Lord, who have been living under foreign pagan rule for the last 70 years as exiles, who have been through some of the most severe traumas. He's leading them back into a land that's basically desolate with no resources in order to carry out a mission that is almost impossible. Insert Tom Cruise reference. I don't have one. I wish I did. And not only that, but when he gets there, you know, the people kind of immediately fall into disobedience. We don't see much about it in the book of Haggai, but in Ezra, we see that not only is there this, just this difficult task because of resources and because of the people he's leading, but there's also opposition from people that are surrounding them. The pagans are coming to Zerubbabel and saying, hey, we want to help you guys rebuild the temple. And Zerubbabel says, no. So these guys go to the Persian king and they get the whole work shut down. I can't even imagine the amount of stress Zerubbabel was under, how discouraged he might have been. He, we know for a fact that he was discouraged because in chapter 2, the Lord comes and brings a word of specific encouragement to Zerubbabel as he's leading his people. What if, when God came and told Zerubbabel about this plan, this plan to overthrow these kings and these rulers, the, the plan to crush the armies, the plan to reestablish this Davidic line, what if instead of saying, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I will, I will, he said something like this. Zerubbabel, I need you to shake the heavens and the earth. I need you to overthrow the thrones and the kingdoms. I want you to overthrow the chariots and their riders. I want you to make yourself like a signet ring. I want you to reestablish this line. It would be impossible be like if I were to tell Grant Miller, brother, I need you to make sure that this church lives or dies. You're a pastor, but you can't do that. The Lord is telling Zerubbabel, I have a plan and I'm going to accomplish something through you, but don't worry, I'm going to be the one who does it. So keep trusting in my strength, in my power, not your own. Zechariah, a contemporary prophet of Haggai, he was prophesying at the same time as Haggai. He has a specific word to Zerubbabel during this time, and he says this. Not by, it's from the Lord. Not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The Lord is telling Zerubbabel, because I'm sovereign, you don't have to be. And brothers and sisters, the Lord is telling us the same thing this morning. Because He is sovereign, you don't have to be. Stop trying to be God. Stop trying to rule the universe. You can't do it. It's not possible. To my fellow elders in this church, 
and you've shown yourself to So help us to believe this about you as we go out and live our lives for the glory of your name and for the good of your church. Amen.